Let's turn to Daniel chapter 11. We're going to read verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Verse 21. In his place, a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king will do as he pleases, and will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous, monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the desire of women. He will show, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. At the, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. 
and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. He will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us now this morning as we turn our minds to your word once again, and as we seek to reflect upon this amazing prophecy, this final and largest and most detailed prophecy in Daniel. We pray, Lord, that you would give us insight and understanding, that we would be quick to listen and slow to speak, and we would be those who are uh, who fear you and are quick to hear from your mouth what the truth is. I pray, Lord, that you'd instruct us, help us to get out of this chapter what you intend. Help us to see your word and not the word of man. We pray that you'd glorify your name through all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we looked at this chapter, and we looked at it in an overview and in an overview kind of way, and we, we discussed the question of chronology. What's the chronology here? What, when do these things take place? And you should have noticed last week, and when, we, and when we read this chapter this morning, that the focus of this prophecy is on this personal, this future person, this future personal antichrist, as I said last week. It's the it's the primary focus of the chapter. Over 50% of the prophecy has to do with this man, this despicable person that we're reading about here. And last week, we looked at the chronology and mentioned that the prophecy starts in the ancient world, but it ends in the future. It ends at the time of the end, the end of the age. And so it's an odd prophecy, and it, re- it requires that in our interpretation of it, it jumps somewhere. It starts with Alexander the Great, and it ends with the resurrection of the dead. It ends with the end of the indignation against Israel. It ends with a, a section here that has no historical fulfillment. You can't find that last part in history. And so therefore, it must jump. And this idea of jumping, when God is giving these prophetic details, there's a precedent for it. And you remember last week I mentioned in uh, verse 2 and verse 3 and 4, when it's talking about Alexander the Great and the Persian kings, it only lists four of the Persian kings after Cyrus, and then it jumps ahead to Alexander the Great, skipping over a century of other kings in Persia. And this is something that's been pointed out by commentators for two millennia. Ancient commentators on Daniel will point this out, that, hey, look, prophecy isn't like history. A historian would give all the details. The prophet only is saying what God tells him to say and only the significant things. And therefore, there are jumps. The question is not whether there's a gap or whether there's a jump, but where is it? Liberals, of course, say there is no jump. Liberals say, you know, Daniel 
just got it wrong in, at the last part. That's how we can explain this unfulfilled section at the end. That's how we can explain that Daniel speaks about the resurrection of the dead. He expected the resurrection of the dead to come in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was wrong. And the liberals are okay with that because they don't believe in prophecy and supernatural things. But conservative and traditional commentators of the Bible say, no, 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 this is a prophecy of God. This is, Daniel is a prophet according to Jesus Christ. And so to say that Daniel erred is really to uh, discredit Jesus' statement that Daniel was a prophet. And so we have to explain that in a different way than just saying Daniel made an error. Now there are some attempts to try to find historical fulfillment in the last part of this prophecy. Uh, some Christians try to explain that the final part here from verse 40 to verse 45 is talking about Herod the Great or Julius Caesar. But the vast majority of commentators say, no, that's doing violence to the text. You're really twisting it, and you're trying to save Daniel from being in error the wrong way. The best way is to see that the prophecy has jumped, not that this is talking about Herod or Julius Caesar. Having read their uh, attempts to make it about Herod or Julius Caesar, I agree, it does violence to the text. And I agree with the conclusion of John Goldingay, who says that these verses simply cannot be correlated with actual events. So you have three options when it comes to this prophecy. One, Daniel erred. Two, it doesn't jump, and we're going to try to squeeze the last part into somewhere in history and do violence to the text. Or three, which is the most natural thing, and that's to see that Daniel jumps ahead to the future. And he's talking about the Antichrist to come in the last, in the last time. Now this view that the, it's talking about the Antichrist and that the prophecy jumps is the traditional view of the Christian church. It's the view of Christians that take different approaches to eschatology even. Um, whether you're amillennial or premillennial, these men see a jump here to the Antichrist it's an ancient view. The question is, where does it jump? And last week we looked at two different places that are common to see that jump, verse 21 or verse 36. Now, whichever verse you jump at, all are agreed that the prophecy leads us to Antiochus Epiphanes and then jumps to the Antichrist. So if you jump at verse 21, basically what that means is the prophecy in its chronology, leads us right up to Antiochus and then jumps to Antichrist. If you jump at verse 36, what that means is the prophecy leads us into the reign of Antiochus, and we're actually looking at Antiochus until verse 36, and then in the midst of Antiochus, it jumps. And whatever view you take, everyone would agree that Antiochus is intended to be a picture of the Antichrist. He's intended to mirror the future man of sin, which is actually why the prophecy takes us to him and then jumps from him to Antichrist. And just finishing up our little review of last week, um, I argue that the jump is in verse 21. And I agree with the ancient commentator Jerome, and he said that in his day, the majority of Christians actually thought that the prophecy jumped in verse 21. Today, the majority of conservative scholars think that the prophecy jumps in verse 36. Here's five, the five reasons I gave last week. First of all, there's no reason to jump in verse 36. From verse 21 to the end, it's really one unit. It's talking about one person. And it's best to take 
verse 21 to the end is one career. There's no reason to cut that up. Secondly, the precision that we find before verse 21 is kind of gone in ver- after verse 21. If you're trying to find historical fulfillment for Antiochus, Epiphanes after verse 21, it's hard to do so. There's definitely a resemblance, but there's not precision. You're going to have to try to say, well, we don't know for sure if he did this, but maybe. So because it's not exact, that seems to point that it's not talking about Antiochus. Thirdly, chapter 12, is, which is part of the prophecy, is clearly talking about the future. And chapter 12 connects with the career of the Antichrist after verse 21. For example, look at verse 31 with me, brothers and sisters. It talks about the abomination of desolation that this individual is going to set up. Now, if we jump at verse 36, that would mean that verse 31 is really talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. But when we get to chapter 12, there's some more details that are given about this abomination of desolation that's mentioned. And we're given a timing, for example, in verse 11 of chapter 12, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up. It's talking about the abomination of desolation we learned about in chapter 11. It says there's going to be a certain amount of time, and that time just doesn't correspond to Antiochus Epiphanes. So chapter 12 seems to show us that the whole career is about Antichrist. And then lastly, I argued last week, Jesus Christ says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, that's when you know that the end is near. So Jesus put it in the future. He didn't see the abomination of desolation as in the past, which means to Jesus, this is still future. Jesus talks about, what did Jesus say would come after the abomination of desolation? Remember? The tribulation. A tribulation like no other time in the history of mankind and never will be after that. And look what we find here in chapter 12, verse 1 very same mention of this tribulation in the same prophecy of the abomination of desolation. And immediately after this tribulation, what do we find? We find the resurrection of the dead. And this is also what Jesus talked about, that there's going to be the abomination of desolation, there's going to be the great tribulation, and immediately after that, Jesus Christ will return and gather his elect. The dead in Christ will rise. And so that order is really found here and also in the teachings of the New Testament. So what this means is that Daniel is giving us a future and a detailed description of the Antichrist's career and his demise. And this is unique and this is important. This is what we're dealing with in this prophecy. And I'd like to quote one uh, brother, his name is Samuel Clow, on the importance of understanding that this is talking about Antichrist. Here's what he says. Taking this text to refer to Antiochus serves to de-emphasize the precise thing that God is emphasizing in Daniel. These two chapters, 11 and 12, were given to Daniel because God wants to emphasize the nature and life of the Antichrist. God considers this individual and what he will do important, that he wants to give the church understanding of this dreadful and terrible individual before he takes the stage of history. Given the fact that he did not do this for Hitler or Stalin or whoever else, tells us just how terrible a man the Antichrist is and how disastrous his reign will be. 
when we insert Antiochus into the text, we end up believing that something incredibly significant is part of the past when it is instead part of the future, and this leaves the church unprepared. As dreadful as Antiochus was, there's a reason that Daniel was so undone at his revelation. And when we think it refers even in part to events that are already past, it makes it harder for us to feel what Daniel felt and what God intends us to feel about this revelation. I think those are wise words about why it's important to see this is about Antichrist. Otherwise, we might say, ah, okay, I see this is about Antiochus, but what's Daniel all freaking out about? I mean, why is this, and why is Antiochus even here in, in this text? What's the importance of him? I mean, there's a lot of villains in history, right? And Israel has faced a lot of villains in their history. And why doesn't it end right? It doesn't even end with Antiochus's history anyway. So it's important for us to see that it's, it's future, as Klaus says, so that the church isn't unprepared. Why do you think God gives us prophecy? Is it just to whet our curiosity? Is it just to make us have debates and fights in the church? You know? Why does God give us prophecy? God gives us prophecy for a purpose. It's not here for nothing. I mean, how many of you are thankful for the prophecies of Jesus Christ's first coming? How, how many of you believe that uh, you know, you wouldn't have the conviction of Christ that you have if it wasn't for those prophecies of Christ. I know for me, personally, it's very important that the coming of Jesus was prophesied of. I listened to the apostles say, this is testified by the prophets, right? And if it wasn't, I'd, be, I'd actually question, I think, you know, I think there's something missing here. This is novel. This isn't, this can't be found in the scriptures of truth. So God gives it to us for a purpose, and it truly is invaluable in the days of its fulfillment and afterwards. In Matthew 24, verse 25, Jesus says, Behold, I have told you beforehand. There's a sense in that phrase, isn't there, that it's really important that I'm telling you beforehand, right? And that I'm telling you beforehand so that when it happens, you don't stumble. So when it happens, you're not freaking out, and you don't lose your head. So when it happens, you don't question, where's God? I'm telling you beforehand as a protection for you so that when it happens, you will see that God is in control. Or in John chapter 14, verse 29, he says, look, I have told you beforehand, so when it comes to pass, you may believe. So when people see the fulfillment of prophecy, this is a mercy, that they'll be kept from stumbling and they'll believe and say, hey, look, God said this before would happen. And now it's happening just as he said. What an encouragement to our souls. What a a reason for people to drop their unbelief and to put their faith in Christ. What a strengthening for the saints. How many of you have ever heard of the so-called years of silence between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament? We often hear that there was 400 years of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist, right? Now, what they mean by that is there was no scripture that was written at that time. There was no prophet that was sent between the last prophet Malachi and John the Baptist. But it really would be wrong to say that those are 400 years of silence because God here prophesies of things that happened in those days. And think about how precious and how valuable Daniel's prophecies would be for people living in the days of Antiochus. Think about how precious Daniel's prophecies would be as the Syrian wars are unfolding and they're just basically watching it unfold before their very eyes while they've got the text in their hand 
seeing it happen. And then it leads right up to Antiochus Epiphanes. And even if it jumps at verse 21, there's an undoubted resemblance there. And so they can say, wow, we're being persecuted. We're being slain by Antiochus and his forces. Everything that Daniel is saying would happen is basically happening. But look, there's hope here. That means God is in control. God hasn't abandoned us. There's going to be a bright end to all this. So really, God isn't silent just because he's not always speaking from heaven or speaking through a prophet. Otherwise, we'd have to say God is totally silent right now too, right? But he's not. God is day and today speaking through creation and nature. God speaks through the scriptures of truth every day. It's, if you want to hear God, you just need to open up your eyes. Look all around you. Open up the scriptures and you can hear from him anytime that you want. Amen? God is in control, and there will be a triumphant end. This is what the prophecies show us. Now this morning, we're going to look at the career and the demise of Antichrist, and we're going to try to learn what God has intended to show us here. Now because this is future, there's a lot of speculation, and we're not going to I'm going to try to minimize the speculation as much as I can this morning. And I'm just going to try to do what I think is best, and that is to draw some general points from this chapter. We're going to restrict the drawing of these points from Daniel chapter 11, or at least try our best to restrict. We might go elsewhere to corroborate, but I'm just going to try to draw some general points here that we can take away. That's not too speculative at all, okay? And I'm going to give 10 this morning, 10 points, 10 things we can take away from this prophecy about the future. First, and obviously, the career of Antichrist is determined by God from beginning to end. That should be so encouraging because the Antichrist career is, is the epitome of rebellion against God. It's the epitome of let us cast away his fetters from us. Let's do what we want. In fact, let's even set ourselves up as God and draw worship to ourselves. And we know what rebellion looks like, but this is the epitome of rebellion. And yet, even when we look at his career, we can say it's completely determined by God. And that's an absolutely encouraging thing. It's really the main point of Daniel. God is sovereign in heaven and on earth. God sets up rulers and tears them down, and that includes even this person, the Antichrist, the epitome of rebellion. Nothing is happenstance. There's a heavenly background to everything that happens on earth. God permits Satan to rebel. He gives him permission, and he gives him permission to do so for a purpose. As Keith Brooks says about this chapter, that which God has declared in his word concerning the end of kingdoms shall surely come to pass and then the sins of men and the wickedness of Antichrist and Satan shall be made to serve his purposes and contribute to the bringing of his counsels to birth in their season. So it's not that they're trying to frustrate God's counsels. Well, they may be trying to, but it's not that they are frustrating him or posing an obstacle to God. They're actually contributing to God's counsel and his purpose. The greater context of Daniel shows us this point, but also the prophecy itself emphasizes God's sovereignty. Look at verse 27. It speaks at the end of verse 27 of the appointed time. For the end is still to come at the appointed time. Look at verse 29. At the appointed time, 
Who's doing the appointing? God. At the appointed time, he will return. Look at verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. The emphasis here in this prophecy is saying all of this stuff is determined by God. Look at verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Even a man exalting himself above God is also decreed. In verse 21, uh, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people and everyone found written in the book will be rescued. And as you read on in chapter 12, again, what's emphasized here is that it's at the appointed time. Seal up the words, Daniel. It's appointed until the end. This is probably the greatest encouragement for people in times of crisis that God is in control. And not just in times of worldwide crisis like what often happens in the world and with nations, but also in times of individual crisis. If you ever are facing a crisis in your life or trouble or distress or calamity or whatever it may be, this is one of the most encouraging things that you could know is that God is sovereign and in control of even those things. And that's something that you either believe or you don't, you know? And for those who believe it, it's a, it's a source of great comfort in their lives. Why is it that when we get blessed, we always say, oh, God is so good. He's the one giving us all these things. When bad things happen, we often say, where's God? Rather than do what Job said, shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not evil also? Right? We're kind of schizophrenic or something. We think, God's there. He's good. Where is he? He's gone when crisis comes. But be encouraged that he is in control. And as Paul says in Romans 8, all things are working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. All things are working together for good. That's the first point. The career of Antichrist is determined by God from beginning to end. Second general point we can take away from the career of Antichrist. Antichrist is an instrument of God's indignation against Israel for the violation of the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. Antichrist is the instrument of God's indignation. That phrase, the instrument of God's indignation or the weapon of God's indignation is actually a phrase found in Isaiah. Isaiah talks about Assyria and Babylon as the weapons of God's indignation. Moses in the, pro- in the law says, if you violate the covenant, if you don't obey the commands and keep all of them, then I'm going to spend my indignation on you by bringing nations against you. And they're going to kick you out of your land and give you all sorts of grief. And don't, get it, don't think that it's them. Understand that it's me. This is my indignation. This is what Moses said. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24. This is a very important theme in the Bible and in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 5, verse 24. You can find so much of Isaiah's themes in Daniel. Daniel would have been familiar with Isaiah too. Isaiah 5.24. This is God talking about wrath against Israel. 
Therefore, as, the, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and as dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom will blow away as dust. And here's why. This is punishment from God. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's why God is punishing them, because they've rejected his law and aren't listening to his word. Look at verse 25. On this account, the anger or indignation or wrath of the Lord has burned against his people, and he has stretched out his hand against them to strike them down. His hand is stretched out in wrath. The mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. But for all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. So what the prophet is saying here is, because they broke his law, in anger he punished them. But even though he punished them, even though they lay like refuse in the streets, his anger is not spent. It's not exhausted. And his arm is still stretched out in judgment. And this phrase here in the last part of verse 25, that his anger is not spent, his arm is still stretched out, Isaiah repeats it four times after this. Again and again. It's always after, and be punished them because of their sins. And yet, even though he punished them, his anger is not spent. His arm is still stretched out. And then he punished them some more. And even after he did that, his anger is not spent and his arm is still stretched out. And then he punished them some more. And his arm is still stretched out. And there's a big question that is raised here. And it's actually explicitly raised in the prophet. How long? How long will it be? When will your... When will you... Remember that? How long will you be angry, O Lord? How long will you be wrathful against your people? Turn from your wrath. How many times will you have to strike us before it's all over? And God says, a little while and it will be all over. And my wrath will be spent and you shall be saved. And he gives them hope of salvation. Antichrist is the instrument of God's indignation, just like the Assyrian and the Babylonian. But here's the difference. Antichrist is the last instrument of God's indignation. It will never more be said after the Antichrist. For all this, his anger is not spent and his hand is stretched out still. That will be the very end. The indignation will be over as the prophets say and God will then save his people. In fact, the indignation will be over because at that time they will cease to reject the law of the Lord and they will begin to listen to the word of God. That's the reason for the wrath that reason is removed, no more indignation. That's what Daniel tells us in Daniel 11, that, it, that the Antichrist will prosper until the indignation is finished. Daniel chapter 8 says the same thing. I'll tell you what will happen at the final time of indignation. All of Israel would have perked their ears up when they heard these words. Ooh, answer to Isaiah's question. The end of the indignation. God does not only have indignation for Israel, but he has wrath against all men. The Bible speaks of in, indig, his indignation against all, and, his, and he, he does have wrath against all men for their sins. He even has wrath against the weapons of indignation. After he uses them, he destroys them for their sins. And so Antichrist will be used and then destroyed by God as well, which brings us to our third point, that Antichrist's career will be short and it will come to a sudden end. 
Now, the text doesn't exactly tell us how long the entire career will be, but whenever God speaks about persecutors and the, and the, the weapons of his wrath, he always encourages his people by saying, in a short while, they will be no more. Don't fret when an evil person is prospering and, and destroying you, because it will just be a little while. What we can say is that from the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist sets up that abomination of desolation, the Bible tells us that from that point until the end, there will only be a period of a short three and a half years. We get that from Daniel 9, where it says, in that midst of that last week, he'll set up the abomination of desolation. And also look at chapter 12, verse 7. When, a man is at, when this angel is asked how long it will be, he says it will be for a time, times, and a half time, which we learn elsewhere is, again, a three-and-a-half-year period. And in verse 11 and 12, a question is asked, how long will it be after the abomination is set up? And they say it will be a period of about three-and-a-half three years. So that period is short. And that's what Jesus also says in the Olivet Discourse. He says that when the abomination of, is, of desolation is set up, there's going to be a time of persecution. You need to get out of Jerusalem. But then he encourages them and says, but those days are shortened because if they weren't short, then no flesh would be saved. So that's a short time after uh, the real trouble begins. There are some commentators who think that verse 23 of chapter 11 is the covenant that chapter 9 talks about in verse 27 of chapter 9. If you remember, the prince that is to come will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice. Some commentators say that verse 23 of chapter 11, that alliance, that covenant, is the one that is made. I can't say for sure. But we can say that, nevertheless, when the abomination of, of desolation is set up, there's a very short time that remains. And that's the hardest time of all. That's the great tribulation. And so that should encourage the saints. It's meant to be an encouragement, just a short time. Now look at verse 45. This is the end of the Antichrist. This is how he comes to his end. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Between the seas, the Hebrew can go either ways. It can, it can say between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, which means he's going to pitch his tent between the seas and the mountain, between them. And it's not disputed what the mountain is. That would be Jerusalem or Mount Zion. So between Mount Zion and the seas, that would be the Mediterranean Sea, in the plural denotes bigness. This is what it would be if we interpret it as between the seas and the Mount Zion. Somewhere between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean, he'll plant his pavilion. Or in the Hebrew, it could be he will plant, he will pitch his tent, the tents of his royal pavilion, between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. And between the seas there would be between uh, the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. That's a common way also of speaking in Israel, between the seas, the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean, which would be Jerusalem itself. And um, a lot of commentators take that as the best explanation that this is talking about Antichrist setting up his pavilion in Jerusalem. The NIV translates it that way, and many commentators seem to agree with that. So he's going to be there, but look how he will be destroyed. What does it say? 
yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Doesn't really say much, does it? He'll come to his end and no one will help him. I like the comment by Wallace Emerson. He says, the final phrase dismisses Antichrist without fanfare and almost with the wave of God's hand. He is not even given a lengthy obituary. He'll come to his end, by the way, and no one can help him. Why can no one help him? Because it's God himself who's taking him out. And who can stand against God? The fourth general point we can take away is related to this and how this will happen. And that is Christ will return and the dead will be raised at that time. And Christ will be the one who puts an end to Antichrist. Now, it doesn't technically say that Jesus will come and put an end to the Antichrist here, but there are these clues in other texts related to this one that fill that in. Look at chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. After this great tribulation, it says, At that time, your people, everyone who is written in the book, will be rescued. So here we have rescue. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt and those who have insight will shine brightly so with the clue here is that the people of god are going to be rescued from this persecutor who do you think is going to do that rescuing and related to that rescuing is the resurrection of the dead and that gives us an ample clue that it's jesus christ who's going to do the rescuing and he's going to bring about the resurrection and that's exactly what we find in other prophecies matthew 24 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, do you remember? It says, the Antichrist will be revealed, the man of sin who opposes God and sets himself in the temple proclaiming to be God, but he will be destroyed by the coming and the brightness of the Lord. This is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul explicitly tells us that the man of sin's end will come when Jesus comes. And Revelation 19 and 20 also tell us that the beast, which is the Antichrist in the context of Revelation, will be destroyed or taken and thrown into the lake of fire by Jesus Christ when he comes in Revelation 19 and 20. So the encouragement for us in this is that when Antichrist is here, Christ is near. And Jesus says, lift up your heads for your redemption or your rescue draws near. Very encouraging. That should thrill us. A lot of Christians say, I don't want to live through those days. Well, one, they're going to be short. Two, it's going to be really exciting because we'll have the prophecies to encourage us. And three, then we'll know that Jesus is very close. Very encouraging. Fifth point to take away from this chapter about Antichrist. Antichrist will be a person, human person. He'll be political, and he'll be filled with Satan. So we're not talking about, when we're talking about Antichrist, we're not talking about someone who's not a human being. How many of you have ever seen Men in Black, right? Remember when the alien spaceship hits the ground and he basically sucks the insides out of a person and the alien goes inside the person's skin and he walks around for the rest of the, <laughs> rest of the movie talking funny and looking kind of funny? That's not a human being. It looks like one, but it's not a human being, right? It's an alien inside a human being's body. That is not the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a human being. He's not just Satan filling a human skin. We're talking about a human being but one who's filled with the devil. And this isn't the first time we've seen this, actually. If you remember in the Gospels, it explicitly says that Judas was filled with Satan, that Satan actually entered him. 
And Judas is called the son of perdition by Jesus, just as the Antichrist is called the son of perdition by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So probably what happened with Judas is similar to what will happen with the Antichrist. And he'll be clearly a political figure in, in power, making political decisions and movements. But here we see that his policies will be deceit and it will be war. Deceit and war. It's interesting, in that regard, he's not really that unique, is he? <laughs> Antichrist as a politician is really not that much different than most politicians, which is their, their policy also seem to be uh, deceit and war. And so, is Antichrist like everybody else, or is everybody else like Antichrist? I don't know which way to say that. In verse 38, it says, He will honor the God of fortresses, which might seem strange, considering he exalts himself above all gods and proclaims himself to be God. Carl Keel, in his commenta- commentary, says about this, The God of fortresses is the personification of war. And the thought is this, He will regard no other God, but only war, War will be his God. The taking of fortresses, he will make his God. He will worship this God above all as the means of his gaining world power. So he's a human person, he's political, and he's filled with Satan. Sixthly, Antichrist can probably be spotted before the abomination of desolation and before he seeks to gain the world's worship. This is the, I think one of the fascinating things about this prophecy is even though the abomination of desolation really is the climactic point, it really is the point that Jesus draws our attention to and says, when you see that, you need to flee from Jerusalem and know it's, the end is near. But the amazing thing is that from verse 21, there's a lot of things that are said before the abomination of desolation. There's a lot of things that are said after the abomination of desolation. Basically, whatever you interpret the abomination of desolation to be, it's got to fit within this larger prophetic context. So you can say that, I say the abomination is X, but that means I'm able to explain all the things that lead up to it and all the things that come from it. And so I say that Antichrist will probably be spotted by those who are watching before the abomination of desolation. I say probably because I don't know for sure. Many are watching, and I think that is a good thing. Seven, Antichrist will arise out of the East. And... I believe this is uh, something that we're warranted to say from this prophecy, that the despicable person comes from the east. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, In his place, a despicable person will arise. And whose place is it talking about? It's talking about the king right before. And that king is the king of the north. In this, in this, historical, uh, in this section that's been historically fulfilled. The king of the north will do this and that. He will come to his end, and in his place a despicable person will arise. The king of the north is the king of the the Seleucid Empire, one of the divisions of Alexander's kingdom, which is also called Syria. Although when when we say Syria, we're not meaning just the modern country of Syria, which is really too small. Syria in the ancient world was much bigger, would have included many countries, including Iraq. Syria was only one one division of Alexander's kingdom, and that corresponds with chapter 8, which tells us that the little horn will arise out of one of the divisions of Alexander's kingdom. But Syria was also a part of the Roman Empire, which 
corresponds and agrees with chapter 2 and chapter 7, which says that the little horn will arise out of the, Ro out of the fourth kingdom, out of the Roman Empire. So whoever the Antichrist be, he's got to arise out of one of the divisions of Alexander's empire and also out of the uh, Roman Empire. And this seems to fit the bill that he rises out of the east from Syria. You also need to remember in Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 9 that his people are those who destroy the city and the sanctuary. If you remember, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And there are many people who point out that in the historical sources that we have of those days, the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary were Syrian. And also, look at verse 30 of chapter 11. I think this is an, a very interesting clue. In verse 30 of chapter 11, it says here that ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant. It says ships of Katim will come against him. And what's really fascinating about this verse is it's not the only place in the Bible where it's foretold. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 24. And this is actually mentioned in Balaam's amazing prophecy. In Numbers 24. Numbers 24, verse 24. at the very end of the chapter here. Look what it says. The ships of ships shall, ships shall come from the coast of Katim, and they shall afflict Asher and will afflict Eber. So they will also come to destruction. So it's interesting that Daniel mentions the ships of Katim coming against Antichrist, and Balaam mentions the ships of Katim afflicting Asher and Eber. And Asher, of course, is uh, the the name of a person that is uh, the, the father of the Assyrians, the father of the Syrians and the people of the East. So it seems reasonable to say that this is actually a prophecy also of Antichrist and that Balaam is actually saying that the ships of Katim are going to come against Asher, which is some person probably from Assyria or Syria. So it does seem he'll come out of the east. Eight, Antichrist will have conflict with other nations. What this means is that his career is not totally smooth. And we can see that from verse 21 through verse 45. Even at the beginning, there's a rough, there's a, he has conflict with other nations. But even at the end, he has conflict with other nations. And I think this is a point that often gets missed by many who think about the Antichrist. They think that he's going to just basically control the entire world. But according to Daniel 11, it seems like he doesn't. It seems like he has some conflict with other nations, that not everybody submits to the Antichrist. Now, that might seem to be at odds with what Revelation says, that the whole world, it seems to say, will go after the Antichrist and worship him, etc. But according to Daniel 11, it's best to, actually, it's best to take Revelation's statements as more general and not literally saying that every individual on the earth is going to worship and follow after the Antichrist. And this has a precedent in Daniel itself. Remember what, what the book of Daniel says about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, God has given you dominion and authority over everybody. Wherever people live, that's, you've got the authority over them. You rule over everything, which wasn't actually literally true, right? Nebuchadnezzar didn't rule over 
everything. There was all sorts of people in the world that Nebuchadnezzar didn't rule over. So there's a, there's a general way of speaking there about him ruling over absolutely everyone. And as I mentioned in that passage when we looked at it in chapter 2, to rule over, have power over all, seems to mean that God has given him the power to rule over whom he will. None can defeat Nebuchadnezzar. None could defeat or can defeat Antichrist, even when they come against him, as we can see. Look at verse 41. He will enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. It also says in verse 42, he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. So it's interesting that some nations here are mentioned that Antichrist doesn't defeat, but he will defeat Egypt. And in verse 44, you also see his conflicts Rumors from the east and the north will disturb him. He will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. So it seems like many, it seems like we as Christians might need to rethink the scenario a little bit on Antichrist. Does he rule over everybody? Or does he have conflict with people right until the end? Ninthly, and now these last two points are really the most important. Antichrist will proclaim himself to be God and will receive worship from men. And this is something we see in all the prophecies of Daniel, chapter 7, chapter 8, here chapter 11. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul also tells us this. In the book of Revelation, we see this. This really is the most prominent feature of Antichrist's career. This is what he's generally known for. The Antichrist is going to come, he's going to proclaim himself to be God, and people will worship him. It's connected with the abomination of desolation. He's going to go into the temple, Paul the Apostle says, and he's going to there proclaim himself to be God in the temple. That scenario should remind us of different portions in Scripture. It reminds me of Isaiah 14, where the prophet says, How are you fallen, Lucifer, star of the morning? For you said, I will exalt my throne above the heavens. I will sit in the place of God. There seems to be this theme where Satan wants to be God. And of course, not just Satan, but this really is the problem with mankind too, whom Satan inspires with these kind of ideas. Genesis chapter 3, we should also be thinking of, where Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, you will be God if you eat from that tree. Satan's idea, but mankind sure likes it, don't they? seems to be the essence of our sin is unwillingness to submit to God as our king. It's our great problem. Unwillingness to recognize that we are not God and that God is God. And he has authority over us. You will be like God. Or think of another portion of scripture that makes me, that, that reminds me of this is Matthew chapter 4 verse 9 when Jesus is tempted and Satan comes and says, I'll give you everything if, what, you bow down and worship me. Satan, even there, that critical moment, was wanting Jesus to worship him. And Jesus responded with the law, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In Revelation chapter 13, 3 to 15, we have a pretty detailed account of the 
beast of the Antichrist amazing everybody and making the whole world worship him and drawing worship from every tribe and tongue and nation, it says, to him. You can read about that in Revelation 13. Clearly, something like this has not happened yet. It's still future. It's the climactic close of the age when Jesus Christ will return. And then the last point to make this morning from this text is that the focus of Antichrist hostility will be towards Israel. You'll remember that Daniel chapter 10 verse 14 tells us that this prophecy is about what's going to happen to your people in the latter days. When we're, when we're talking about Israel, or when I use the word Israel, I'm talking about Daniel's people, which, by the way, includes Christians. Because when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, do you or do you not become one of Daniel's people? You become a child of Abraham, right? You become a part of Israel. You become part of the family of God. So this prophecy is about Israel or Daniel's people, which includes Gentiles who, be, who become a part of Israel. But Daniel's people also includes Jews who don't believe in Jesus. True or false? Your, your people, which would include also the children of Abraham who don't believe. And so when we're talking about Israel, and typically these are spoken of as Israel and the church, but really when we're talking about Israel, we should think of Daniel's people or, or Israel as Israel made up of believing and unbelieving people with its believing and its unbelieving parts. This is Daniel's people. These are, the Bible says, the holy people, the people that are set apart. When we mean holy, we don't mean we live perfectly, right? We don't mean that we keep all the commandments. We don't mean that we're good. We mean that we're set apart. In chapter 12, verse 1, look, look what this prophecy says about the people. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who, found, who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And look at verse 7 of chapter 12. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river. He raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Turn with me to Daniel chapter uh, 7. And here, look at verse 18. The saints of the highest one, or the holy people of the highest one, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. I'm just pointing out that Daniel 7 and Daniel 11 and 12 are talking about the same people. Look at verse 21, the emphasis here. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Until, of course, the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. The time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So the, the little horn, the Antichrist, is waging war against the saints, but only until the Ancient of Days comes. When he comes, no more persecution. Verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and he will wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times and in the law and they, will be, they, the saints, will be given into his hand for how long? A time, times and a half time. Same as what Daniel 12 says. 
Verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. So here it's talking about the saints. In Revelation chapter 12, we're also given insight into, into who the devil and the Antichrist focuses their hostility. And Daniel or Revelation chapter 12 indicates that Antichrist channels his wrath and his anger and his hostility towards Israel and towards her children who believe in the testimony of Jesus. Israel and her children, actually he's persecuting Israel and then at one point he, he is frustrated and he persecutes the remnant of her seed, it says, who, who believe in Jesus Christ and keep Jesus Christ's commands. So we have here both Israel and the church, if you will, or perhaps more accurately, Israel with its believing and its unbelieving parts. And you'll see in Daniel chapter 11 this focus, focused hostility on Israel in verse 22, verse 28, verse 30, and verse 32 with the mention of the Holy Covenant. Notice the emphasis, notice the repetition. That the, In verse 22, we've got the prince of the covenant who is swept away. In verse 28, he will return to his land with much plunder. But what is his heart? Here's some insight into the heart of this despicable person. His heart will be set against what? The holy covenant. Look at the emphasis again in verse 30. The ships of Katim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and he will return and become enraged at what? The holy covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Verse 32. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the Holy Covenant. So there's this repetition of the covenant. What is the covenant and why does he hate it? Why is he enraged against it? Why is his heart set against it? And, well, I can't go into all the details here this morning. I do not believe this is talking about the Sinaitic covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. I don't believe it's talking about the Davidic covenant that God made with David. I'll put someone on your throne forever. I don't believe it's talking about the new covenant that God made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All of these covenants, I don't believe he's talking about per se, but with the foundational covenant, which is the Abrahamic covenant, upon which all these other ones depend. If there was no Abrahamic covenant, there'd be no Sinaitic covenant. There'd be no Davidic covenant. There'd be no new covenant. So all these other covenants are really just growing out of that one original foundational covenant that God made with Abraham when he said, I will bless you and your seed and I will make you a blessing in the earth. All the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what Sinai and David and the new covenant in Jesus Christ is all about. So to hate the holy covenant is to hate the Abrahamic covenant, but also all the other things that are built upon it. So all those other covenants are in view here, but specifically the Abrahamic covenant. There's actually only one other place in the Bible where the, holy, the, the phrase the holy covenant is mentioned, and that's in Luke chapter 1, verse 68 and 60, uh, and to, 60 to 73. And there the holy covenant is it's talking about Jesus Christ has come in fulfillment it, because of the holy covenant that God gave to Abraham. This is what makes Israel set apart, isn't it? This is what makes that people the saints. That's not what makes them good, but well, that's, that's what makes them set apart. That's what makes them 
holy. This is what brings those other covenants which makes us holy. This is what brings the new covenant that makes us holy in, in an even greater sense than just being uh, a physical Jew, but also holy in the sense of being one of God's true people indeed. It's this holy covenant that makes Israel holy. And Satan and this world hate Israel, not because Israel is good. They don't hate Israel because Israel is a bunch of goody-goodies and they're a bunch of bad people and they just hate goody-goodies. But they hate Israel for no other reason but that they're holy and that they're set apart. Because they have a holy covenant. That is why Israel is hated. Because they possess a holy covenant. The existence of a holy people based upon the holy covenant reminds the world and Satan of the existence of a holy God. The holy God who made that holy covenant. And that's why they hate the holy covenant, because they basically hate the holy God. There's nothing that says the God of Israel like Israel. There's nothing that points to the specific God of the Bible and all of his righteousness and justice and truth like Israel, like God's people, like Jews, and like Christians. Or as one pastor, Jim Garrish, said, there's nothing quite so upsetting to the postmodern ear, but I would actually say to, to the ear of any person in the world, as to hear of a universal standard of truth or of a chosen people. That's just repulsive to this world. Because what does a chosen people communicate? A God who chooses. And a God who chooses in a particular way and a God who reveals himself to a people people in a particular way, who makes promises, who keeps those promises, who reveals himself as a God of law, righteousness, and truth, and a God of salvation, but a God who's exclusive, the God of heaven and earth with no rivals, and who demands people's faith. There's no other way but this God. It's not the idea of God in general that men hate, but it's the true God of Israel that they hate. People don't mind. If you want to believe in God, that's great. What God, let's join our gods all together. Let's just not talk about exclusivity. Let's not talk about chosenness. Let's just talk about your God, my God. God's great. I love God. But I don't love the God of Israel who reveals himself in the way that he does and that makes those choices in the way that he does. If you want to capture this, just look at the book of Esther. I think this is really the main point of the book of Esther, but in Esther chapter 3, you've got this fascinating character, Haman, right? And Haman is really a proud guy, and he wants worship for himself. He wants everyone to bow down and honor him. He's really a proud person, despicable person, you might say. And, but every time he goes out, everyone bows down to him except for one guy, right? Mordecai. And he's just He's so sick of Mordecai. He hates Mordecai because Mordecai doesn't bow down. And when he finds out, he, he hates this one individual guy, Mordecai, and when he finds out why, he sends his servants, why don't you bow down to, to me? Why don't you bow down to our master Haman? And Mordecai says, because I'm a Jew. That was his answer. I'm a Jew. We don't do that. We're told not to do that. That's wrong. I can't bow down to you. There's only one God to bow down to. And then it says that Haman's hatred changes from hating Mordecai only to hating all the Jews. From that moment, he, he hates all the Jews at that point. And then he goes to the king and he says, there are these people, the Jews, and they are different. Man, they don't submit. They're not like us. They're different. They don't follow our laws and our customs. They all need to die. 
Why? Because he wants things to be a certain way. He wants worship. And there's this existence of this people, a set-apart people, that run against the grain and run counter to the thinking and the ways of the world. And therefore, they're hated. There's an enrage. There's a rage that is directed towards them on that account. But it's ultimately because men want to be their own gods. And these people say no. With the, with the holy people, things become specific and absolute. Things become about what God does and how God reveals himself. And things also become about God's grace. This is really one of the most critical points, is that with the holy people, things become, things have to do with God's grace. And God's grace is all about God getting glory and man getting no glory because men don't do any work. But God is the one who does all the work. Are you happy that it's about God's grace? Are you happy that there are set-apart people by God's grace? Many people cannot stand the fact that God chose a people, that he chose Israel. But that's part of God's glory, according to the Bible, that he's the one who, in his freedom, is able to choose and do things, do what he wants to do by grace. Not because anyone told him to do it. He doesn't answer to anyone. But because he chooses to have mercy and grace upon whom he will, the Bible says. That's part of his glory, the glory of his grace. And Satan wants to destroy this glory, so he can't stand that idea of a chosen people by grace, or anything that has to do with grace. There are many people that say, God can't choose people by grace. He's not allowed to. It has to be our free will. It has to be, we're the ones who make all the choices. God is not allowed to be selective. God is not allowed to choose a person or a people and, and ignore everyone else or pass over everyone else. He's not allowed to do that. And to those people, I say, who are you to tell God what he can and cannot do? What do you mean God's not allowed to choose a nation? He did, right? Do you not believe that as Christians, that God chose a, a nation out of all the other nations in the world? That God literally took one nation and didn't choose other nations. And if you say, well, he can't do that, he did. Who are you to say he can't do that? Who are you to say what God can and cannot do? If he wants to choose a people and he wants to say, oh, I'm going to bless you, and then he saves them, are you going to reply against him? You might say, well, it's not fair. Well, he doesn't owe anyone anything, right? Or you might say, well, they don't deserve it. It's not about them deserving it. It's about grace. And this is what people hate. They're enraged at this, that there is a God in heaven who is a God of justice, who is a God of righteousness, who is a God of grace, and who does what he will. And people hate that, and, and his holy people always are a thorn in their side, a, a problem to their way of thinking. It's not about how good Israel is. It's about the fact that God chose them. So in closing, from one perspective, when we read the, this prophecy in Daniel 11, from one perspective, we can see that this is God punishing Israel for their violation of the covenant. God using Satan as the weapon of his indignation. From the other perspective, we can see that this is Satan sinning. This is mankind rebelling against God. Both of those things are true. And God is using Satan's sin to accomplish his own purpose. And then God is going to destroy the works of the devil, Satan, and all the things that he's been, he's been using Satan for. He's then going to get rid of Satan. 
At last, Jesus Christ will return and all of Israel will become righteous. God's anger will be spent. His hand will be turned in blessing. Satan will be foiled and God will be glorified in all the earth and be seen as the God that he truly is. It doesn't get more climactic and dramatic than this, brothers and sisters. This is the climactic finish, the climactic end of this age. And sadly, many Christians miss this or don't like it. But I say, let's be glad that God is doing what he's doing. And let's learn from him and see what he's about. Let's be glad that we are a part of the holy people. Let's root for the salvation of all the holy people. Let's prepare for the hatred that we're going to experience from the world now and in the future because we're the holy people who stand for the one true God. Let's be glad that one day the entire nation of Israel will be saved. And let's glorify God now for how amazing he is and be excited about that final triumph when God himself will be publicly glorified in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would continue to help us and give us understanding into it. I pray that you would glorify your name through us, through our little church here, through our individual lives, in the space that we are, Lord, even now, shining as a light in the dark world. But I also pray that you would help us not to forget that there's coming a day when the, the glory of God will will shine like the sun. It won't be about candles, but it will be about the blazing glory of God in the earth. And we're excited for that day, Lord. Thank you for your plan for this world. And most of all, Lord, thank you for salvation that you have brought us in by your grace. And though the world hates grace, Lord, we as your people are thankful for your, your grace and we praise you for your grace. And we glorify you that you are the God who in freedom shows grace upon the undeserving. Lord, we praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.